This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey there, Sensitive Rebel. Hope you're doing well. My guest today on the show is Milda DeVoe. Milda, also known as M.M. DeVoe, is a Columbia University MFA graduate and fellow who's a Pushcart-nominated author of short fiction with work that's been published in multiple anthologies and literary journals in multiple countries. Her first full-length nonfiction book, Book and Baby, The Complete Guide to Managing Chaos and Becoming a Wildly Successful Writer-Parent, won first place in the 2021 Indie Awards for books on writing and publishing. Milda has co-written the book of a sci-fi dance musical, won a New York City poet tweet contest judged by the mayor's wife, and danced for the Pope in Vatican City. She lives in Manhattan with her husband, kids, and an urban rabbit. Now, I really appreciate not only Milda's curiosity, but her seemingly infinite willingness to indulge that curiosity. And when you balance that with her comfort with the inevitability of mistakes and misadventures along the way, well, the result, as you'll hear, is that she's had a very diverse and interesting set of experiences and adventures. And you will hear about a number of those in this conversation. So my guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is writer Milda DeVoe. How's it going? Hey, nice to see you. Thanks for having me. So tell me, Milda, what are you rebelling against? I'm rebelling against anti-curiosity. Tell me more. So when you said that, I thought, I really hate it when people aren't curious. And then I thought I had to find a name for that. But I'm so pro-creativity and pro-making and pro-curiosity that it offends me when people don't care. When they say, oh, I'm not interested in that, or I don't watch that. I'm not, I don't, like, don't talk to me about that. That's a difficult subject. Or, oh, I don't read that kind of something. It just seems to me that you should be interested in it. Even if it's not your thing, you should at least be curious enough to allow somebody whose thing it is to talk to you about it. I'm sure there is some word for anti-curiosity, and I don't and know what I'm it gonna is. And now I'm going to be thinking about it. Now we're both going to be thinking <laughs> about it this whole time. We'll figure it out, and I'll just include it later on. So as it relates to curiosity and creativity, one of the things that I know for you is you, along the journey of your life, have done a lot of different creative things. And I'm interested, as we talk today, hearing some more about those, but Tell me about, for you, the origin of the idea of curiosity as a value, because that's what I'm hearing. Is it something to you that you see as really important and fundamental to how you maybe approach life and to living? So tell me about where that came from. I've known you for about 30 seconds, and already we are going as deep as I have ever gone into my psyche. I really haven't ever named curiosity as one of my values, but it absolutely is. And I guess it's because I grew up in the smallest town in Texas. It was a college town, College Station, Texas, if anybody's heard of it. And it, at the time, was, you know, a stop sign, and it was a train station, (laughs) (laughs) then the train stopped going. So it wasn't even a train station. It was just a shed in the middle of nowhere with a football stadium and a annual bonfire that eventually killed people. But I grew up in this little tiny town and I had Lithuanian parents and we were an absolutely displaced person's family. My parents had both been born in Lithuania. They had come over as children. So I guess now they would be called dreamers. They grew up here. They learned to speak English and they both have you know, advanced degrees. Uh, my father was a research chemist and my mother was a Montessori directress. She was one of the first people to study Montessori in this country. My daughter's actually been in a Montessori school for much of her elementary career. So big fan of the Montessori system. Me here. too. My I was raised it and obviously, and I sent my kids that way too, as much as possible. I want to interrupt here because I want to ask, how do two immigrants from Lithuania end up in this little town in Texas? I'm real curious about the story behind that. So it was in the 70s, 1970s, when there were race riots in Chicago, and they were thinking about having a family. And so they were 
living in the South, they had just gotten married. And I guess my father got offered a job in his postdoc position. He was at, I think he was at DePaul University. And his boss got offered the chairmanship of the chemistry department to start a chemistry department at Texas A&M University. And so my dad came over sort of as his second in command and stayed for the rest of his life. I, I lived in laboratories and <laughs> on research floors that smelled of formaldehyde. It was awesome. <laughs> One of my first phrases as a kid was, my father is an inorganic chemist. And <laughs> it was just kind of great. I loved words. He was a real word lover too. And I guess a lot of immigrants really embrace English language and really love it. And one of the things he really instilled in me was a love of the duality of language, like puns and how some words exist in one language and don't exist in another, and how that crosses over into concepts that if you don't have a word for it in your language, you really don't value it in a way. And so there's that kind of I've always found that extremely fascinating. Like there's no words, for instance, in parenting, for instance, there's no real words to say like, I'm proud of you in Lithuanian. It sounds really weird. Like it's not something that people say to each other. And so it just gives you all these, oh, I just want to talk about it all day, you know? <laughs> it's really interesting to hear you say that, talking about people who really value English as a language, because I, I tend to look at English as this really kind of messed up Frankenstein of a language, because it's made up of all these different pieces and parts. And in one way, it could be viewed as interesting, but it makes it such a clumsy, weird sort of thing. And I'm, I'm always thinking about words or phrases or, or really concepts that ex there's words for in other languages. I think like, like Japanese has some just amazing words. I'm like, how smart. They like captured this two sentence idea in one word. That's brilliant. And I don't feel like English has any of that. So I guess it's really what you're saying is at a certain point, it's all a matter of perspective. Well, what English does is it, what English does is it takes that Japanese word and just uses it like, <laughs> and as long as you're open to having these bizarro words in your language that are like farfergnugen, you just take it like, <laughs> And then you just get it. And so there's a, it is a total Frankenstein, but it is also a pick and choose cherry picking Frankenstein where you're like, I like this word from Japanese and I like this word from Swedish and I'm going to put it in a sentence and only the very smartest people are going to know. The most global people are going to know, you know, <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. So, you know, that makes, that makes sense. That's okay. That's cool. That's helpful for me. I'm like, okay, I can, I'm getting a little bit of a reframe on the, on, on the English language here. Not what any of us would have expected on this particular conversation today. Well, actually, I should have expected that exactly talking to a writer, shouldn't I? So dad's chemistry work is what brings you to college station in Texas A&M. And so you're growing up with a chemist father, a Montessori mom. And that to me immediately makes me think, oh, no wonder as far as curiosity being something that could emerge from that environment. But tell me more about the kind of the lessons and learnings that you took from them and from growing up in that sort of an environment and how that related to the development of curiosity as a value for you. So as part of my education, I went to Germany. So it was during the Soviet times. So the Lithuanian government was Soviet. So in order to learn Lithuanian, the way that it was pre-Soviet, you had to go not to Lithuania, but to another place. And there was a private Lithuanian boarding school in West Germany. At the time, it was West Germany. And I, so I went there for two years to learn about Lithuania. And it was taught in Lithuanian. The second year, I took all German classes. It was just this crazy, bizarre place where people from all over the world came to learn about Lithuania. I came back to school, to high school for my senior year. And they're like, oh, where were you? They didn't really notice I was gone, but okay, that I'm back. And then the people who were not my real close friends who knew where I was, they were like, you know, oh, so where were you? And I would say, oh, I, I went to Europe. And they would say things like, and, and adults would say, why would you want to go there? We have everything you need. Like, why would you ever leave Texas? I couldn't get over that. And I still can't get over that. Like, just the fact that so many people just... They weren't, it, it wasn't even that they were jealous. It was more that they were just baffled. Like, why would you go somewhere where they don't speak English? That seems so difficult. And all I did in those two years was like, my eyes were just like, what? The world is so much bigger than I thought. Everything is so different from what I thought. There's so many more opinions and, and, 
everybody thinks they're right. And there's a million opinions and so interesting. And that the diversity that you saw was just astonishing. I loved it. One of the stories, I, I tell the story a lot, so it may be boring, but I think it's funny. When I was really little, so I spoke Lithuanian as my first language. And I thought every person had their own home language because my family had Lithuanian. The other research people were, you know, like my best friend was like from Holland. And then I had, you know, a friend for, whose parents were Chinese. I had a friend whose parents were Korean and everybody spoke a different language in their house. And so I just thought that everybody spoke a different language in their home. And then when you came out in public, you spoke English because that was this common tongue that everybody spoke. An early time when I went to Chicago to visit my grandmother, there were people speaking Lithuanian because it was a Lithuanian community in Chicago. And I just walked up to some strangers and were like, why are you speaking my language? This is my family's language. You're not in my family. Like <laughs> apparently completely humiliating my grandmother. But it's, but this is what I mean. Like you don't realize how the things that you grew up thinking you don't realize that they're wrong until you're out in the real world. And then it's, oh, wow, that was really wrong. But I had to be six or eight before I even knew that everybody didn't have a home language. It sounds like that happened to be the environment that you were growing up around is that everyone had two languages. They had their home language. And then there's this common, this weird common Frankenstein thing we use when we're all talking yeah, to each other. You had the language that your mom um, yelled at you in. And then... <laughs> When she needed to tell you something in front of people. <laughs> I'm, as I'm hearing you talk about this environment that you were growing up in with all of these different households, all these different languages and cultures and backgrounds, it seems like that would lend itself to a, a degree of, if if not curiosity, at least openness to difference because it sounds like you were being exposed to that almost constantly. I always I was just always curious. I don't know. I just always wanted to know what other people lived like. They all had different rituals. My mother was very into going to people's houses and doing whatever their national rituals were. So, you know, we'd go to some festival from like some family would come from India and this would be their national holiday. And then we'd go there and celebrate this holiday and eat all their local food. And it was really amazing. But then also it was huge, humiliating because like at the mall, there would be international day and every family and these were mostly families that we knew. So we would get along with them. They'd all have a booth. I had to stand in a Lithuanian costume, which is wool and many layered with a crown. It was ridiculous. And I had to stand there with this folk costume in the mall, like serving dumplings to people and explaining Lithuanian history and why I'm not Russian and how I'm not Slavic. And, and I'm five. <laughs> Just, oh, no. That seems but, like the kind of thing that could leave some lifelong scars. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Scars. But also self-confidence. Like my name, Milda, is so it's absolutely Lithuanian. And I had to defend it to people whose name was Mary and John. They'd be like, what's your weird name mean? Is it short for something? No. And then, of course, it's just so great that it's a Lithuanian. She's the goddess of love. So yay. <laughs> Yay to then explain paganism to to the super Christians and yay, to, you know, it was just the trauma is real, my friend. <laughs> it, I, I, could, I could see how that would be the case. But you have to, I think at a certain point, if this is your life, you just have to either embrace it or you you get crushed by it. And I just took it on. I was like, okay, I will educate everybody who comes to the international booth at the mall. I will educate them all. I'm ready. <laughs> From your parents, do you remember any specific kind of teachings or lessons or things that they gave to you as it relates to the topic of curiosity, openness, things of that nature? Curiosity, yes, because of science. Like we were always encouraged by my father. We he had the what was it? The the World Book of Knowledge, I think it was called. It was like this giant encyclopedia set. And we had an American Heritage Dictionary. And that dictionary, I think he read it. Like it had notes in it, or possibly he used it in college. It just, there were so many annotations and notes and we would always look up words. And when we played Scrabble, which I played with him a lot, we would look up every word and then figure it out and learn it. And Li, two letters, L-I, it's Chinese mile. Like you, know, <laughs> you got to know like these little archaic things. And anytime you didn't understand something or didn't know something, it wasn't like there's something wrong with you. It was let's look it up and let's find it out. And so there was this constant knowledge that if you didn't know something, there was no shame in that. There was just a job next that we have to go look it up. That right there, 
that's what I'm hearing is there was this practice, this routine of when you don't know, you just go find out and which is going to, I think, encourage curiosity. It's certainly going to encourage you to explore things you don't know rather than make something up, ignore it, do any number of other things. But for them, this nurturing of learning and exploring and really having processes that were followed were like, here's what we do when we don't know something. Mm-hmm. We go find out. Yeah, definitely. Which definitely. is really cool. And I think my mother's influence was that Montessori thing of if you want to try something, you just watch somebody else do it first and then you just do it. Like you just try it and it doesn't matter if you're not perfect the first time. You just keep trying it and doing it over and over again and you get better. And nobody knows how to do anything the first time they try it. So it's not a problem. And I never really associated that with curiosity, but I think that it helps. I think that one of the things that's glorious about Montessori, for example, is that idea that if you break something, you just clean it up. Like, it's not a big, shameful, horrible thing that happens. It's just, oh, okay. Yeah, we we do have glass in this school and, oh, you broke it. And now it's time to learn how to clean up glass. Like, it's just the next step. It's the the consequence, but it's not a negative consequence as much. (laughs) What I am hearing, though, is definitely this framing where there's a showing of Here's, here's what we do when we don't know something and really this encouragement and support of, yeah, it's fine if you're not any good at something and just play around, just try things, both of which seem very conducive to fostering curiosity. I think all humans are naturally curious to varying degrees and I think that can be nurtured or snuffed out, but it sounds like in this case, it was really heavily nurtured just because of the way your parents were, whether or not they were you know consciously thinking, let's make her super curious. They were, they were doing things that were going to lead to a naturally curious person, which I'm guessing is probably one of the reasons why you have had uh, a lot of, I'll say, very diverse interests and things that you've done along the way in your journey to becoming a writer. So let's talk a little bit about that because I know you didn't necessarily start out just as a writer. There's been a path getting there. So tell me about that. Yeah, I definitely did not start out as a writer. I am a naturally gregarious person. I love to meet people. I love to hear their stories and talk to them. And I guess my first love was singing. I was a big singer and I loved to sing and I wanted to perform and I loved to be in front of audiences. And I I really liked that. That was what I did. And I went to college for music and I studied, you know, music. And then after college, I was into musical theater. I moved to New York to become a musical theater actress, did a whole bunch of studying, blew out my vocal cords because I was an idiot because I did a lot of character voices and I wasn't using good technique because I thought I knew better than anybody. And what I discovered was that biology is stronger than brains. And, (laughs) you know, and so I I did mess up my voice, but then I ended up on the stage anyway. I did Shakespeare. I did a lot of Christopher Durang and like weird, crazy characters that were fun. And I did that for 10 years. In the middle of that, I met my husband, married him. And then it was a matter of him being nine to five and me being five to 11 and weekends. So not being able to have any time together made it very hard to exist. And during that time, I was also temping during the day for money. It was a big, it was a big temp industry in New York when I was living here then. And I worked at this Japanese bank where I had to look really busy, but I didn't have any actual work to do except maybe typing a letter. I was on the executive floor and I was like the executive assistant in public to the general manager of North America. There was a whole office staff that did all of his actual work in Japanese. (laughs) And I just had to sit there and look like I was professional, but I couldn't do anything that didn't look professional. So I couldn't read the newspaper. I wasn't allowed to read novels. I just had to sit there. And so to look busy, I started writing a novel in chunks and I wrote a chapter and then I would give it to the receptionist who was equally bored and had to look busy. And so she would take my chapter and mark it up and tell me what she wanted to hear more of or what she wanted to hear less of. And then I would write the next chapter for her. And so I wrote most of a book that way. And then I had an argument with another secretary who... She and I disagreed on whose staples were on my desk, whether they were hers or mine. And at the end of that very intense fight, I realized that this was not 
the life that I wanted. I did not want to be fighting over staples 50 feet from the supply closet where you could just take staples anytime. And so I was like, okay, this is done. I need to find something that's better. And I decided I would go to graduate school and I wanted to do something that I had never done before. And so I thought, what, you know, what don't I know? I a little too arrogantly thought that I knew enough about acting. I was like, well, but I don't know anything about writing. I've never taken a writing class. I love to write. Let me just apply to some writing schools. And so lo and behold, I got into Columbia University. I want to pause you right there because because I, w- I want to ask about the one, that's pretty smart getting paid to write a novel and ha- having it edited for free. I'm like, that's actually a, um, that's a really smart trick there. But what was it in that environment? Like, how did you come up with the idea of, Oh, I know. I'm going to write a novel. That's what I'll do with this time. I was not thinking of it as a novel. I was thinking of it as a way to spend time. I was writing, I was just writing something that was of interest to me. And I I don't think I was even thinking of it as a book at the time. I was just writing something to entertain myself and to entertain my friend at the front desk, whose name I can't even remember, even though she was like the catalyst for my whole entire rest of my career. She was just this nice lady that like chick that I hang out with at lunchtime. Okay, so you're just like, well, I'm gonna do something with my time here. So I'm gonna yeah. just, I'm gonna write because I'll look busy. Yeah, and and it never, kind of I never, it was had nothing. There was no goal to it. It was just entertaining my friend. And I read. I'm a big reader. I have always been a big reader. I read a ton of fiction. I read across genres, everything from beach read page turners all the way to Nobel Prize winning literature and everything in between and poetry and all of it. If it has words on the page, I am happy to look at it. Unless it sucks, then I don't want to read it. (laughs) I I think that's fair. So going back to, Mm -hmm. you decide to apply to Columbia. Yeah. That was crazy. I didn't know any better. I did it because I did not have any idea how high I was throwing this ball. I did not know. I applied to Columbia, Bennington College, and NYU. I did it because Bennington College had the very first non-residency program, and I thought, oh, that'll be much easier on my marriage if I'm not constantly in school, but only in school a couple of days. And so I was like, oh, I'll try that. That sounds like a great idea. They rejected me. I tried NYU because it's in New York City, and I could get there. They rejected me because I had never done a workshop. And then I applied to Columbia because... I got married on that campus and I thought it was so beautiful and I could really see myself going to school there. I think I might have written that on the application. <laughs> I really did not know that it was like my parents, re- they, they value education as a thing. They did not and still don't like my mom still doesn't get that Columbia is a good school. It's a college like to her, like going to college was a big deal and going and getting a graduate degree was very important. Where you went was of zero importance whatsoever, which was very liberating to me, I think. Like now I look at the kids that are my son's agents. Oh my God, the parents are insane about, I have to get my kid into the top, this top, top, everything's about the top. And it's like, how is that going to help your kid? You know, if your kid doesn't do well in school, then it's just as though you can stepping stone your way into a positive future. And you can't. It's you just have to. I don't know. It's more. It's so chance involved. It's about like, can you grab that ring when you see it? Not about being on the horse that gets the closest to the ring every single time you go around the carousel. That, you know, I, I don't know. It just seems like I. I Parents want their kids to succeed so badly. The definition of success is so variable. Like, what is it? What does that even mean? Succeed. What does succeed mean? I ran away with jugglers. Is that success? That's crazy is what that is. Were you Were you having fun while you were doing it? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> were you happy? I was so happy. <laughs> okay. Well, and a little bit scared, it, but also mostly that, happy. I mean- Right. I mean, I can can see that it's obviously success is one of those things that it's, that is so subjective. And of course, yeah, you know, I think you're right. It's like, we get these, try and find these objective ideas of success. Oh, I got into an Ivy league college as if that's some magic pill for something. And it's not, you know, you can find plenty of successful and unsuccessful people who've gone to any given school or who haven't gone to school or any of that. And it is unfortunate that people have gotten caught up in that because it's made the whole college application thing such a disaster now. 
So you got into Columbia, the end of the story here, you applied, you got in and you went and did what there? Yeah, I went there. I got to study. I had amazing professors. Uh, Michael Cunningham was one of my professors. So I really had top talent teaching me. It was not like it is now. Now, now they have so many classes about the business of writing, but then it was just like, write as much as you can, read as much as you can, analyze everything that you do. So I was on campus. And one of the things that I really pushed for was to be able to take classes in the rest of the School of the Arts. So I took a lot of theater classes and drama classes and film classes. They finally allowed it, but it was a battle. Like I had to fight that battle to be allowed. I'm like, hey, it's a School of the Arts. So I want to take a film class. How can I do that? So still being creatively diverse, even in a, a allegedly focused graduate program. I was very upset because I got a C in piano and I was a like straight A Dean's List, 100% kid. Like I was never, I never got anything under an A ever. And he gave me a C in piano. And I was like, I work so hard. Like I'm here at three in the morning practicing. How can you give me a C? He goes, you're not focused. And he said, he goes, you're never going to succeed unless you get focused. And I have... Still not been able to be focused. I'm the least focused person. And I know that now I have it in my head that I need to be focused, but I just can't do it. I just keep like getting distracted by cool things and doing them because I think they're fun or they're interesting or they need to get done or something. One thing that conversation did make me do is finish things. I used to just start things and then just abandon them. But now if I'm going to be distracted, I at least need to finish whatever it is. If I just say, okay, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go do this other thing. I have to finish that other thing and actually do something with it because otherwise it really is just scattered. And That's a good practice. I'm sure my mother would have appreciated it in childhood if I'd ever finished and put anything away when I was <laughs> done with it. I don't think I did that very much. Sorry, mom. So- Actually pulling back a, a bit on the timeline. So you were, before applying to, to grad school and all this, you were doing the theater, doing all, all of the performing. And when you decided to, to make this shift, how was it for you to recognize that, okay, maybe this is something I need to let go of, or maybe this is not you know, a path that's going to continue for me? What was that experience like for you? Was so, it challenging? Or? I don't really let go of things. I just got really involved in doing the next thing. And then, so I didn't like formally stop being an actress. Even now, if somebody calls me and has a Lithuanian voiceover that they need doing, I do it. I love going into a sound studio and doing like a voiceover recording. I'm the voice of OnStar, the Lithuanian voice of OnStar, like in your car. And <laughs> it's like really cool and weird, but that's because that's a thing that like Lithuanian voiceovers don't come very frequently but when they come i'm like oh yeah i'm totally gonna not write today and go and do that because <laughs> that's really cool and like medical equipment that needs like lithuanian instructions and so i definitely haven't a hundred percent given it up and i there's phases of like female actor life like you're ingenue and then you're like middle-aged nobody wants you and then you're old crone so as soon as i get to old crone i'm probably going back on the stage because that I'm ready. I'm ready to be the old crone. Not soon. Eventually, right. <laughs> the old age down the road. Be like, I can play right. old crone. It sounds more than like it's about where you are directing your primary focus at any given point in time. And maybe that has shifted along the way. And so it's rather than saying, okay, I'm letting go of this theater, this performing piece, it's more I'm putting my focus into the writing. And this other part will, it'll still be there in some way, shape or form, but not as much of a primary thing. The way that I describe life is it's the people talk about balance. And I am a very firm believer that balance is not the scales of justice. That if you're thinking of your life in terms of the scales of justice, you're always going to be miserable because you're always pitting one thing against another. And one thing's going to win and the other thing's going to lose. But if you look at your life in terms of balance, like a Calder mobile, where you have billions of moving parts and every single thing, if you joggle one thing, it affects all the other stuff that's hanging off your mobile. And what you want is for the whole thing to sail smoothly and not move around too much. 
And every once in a while, something will happen like a pandemic or a, I don't know, a new baby or somebody gets cancer. And it's like somebody takes one of the pieces and just hangs the heaviest brick on that side. And so the everything else just goes like all over the place. And I think that for balance, for internal balance, to just have the ability to go, okay, that was crazy. Let everything settle down and then try to move things around so that you can have the brick be there or maybe hopefully take the brick off. But things get hung on your mobile, sometimes externally. But you also put things on your mobile. Like for me, I've got a lot of things. I've got writing, I've got acting, I've got my family. I like to travel. I love to read. All these things, I want them there. And so I have to just make sure that everything gets its time and that it all stays stable. And a lot of times my choices are made based on the resources I have, based on whether I have the time, because time is really the most limited resource in my life. So you get through this program and then what? And then my husband and I buy our first apartment and it is down here, downtown New York City. It is June of 2001. Do the math. Oh, yes. It is one block away from this fabulous plaza where they do all kinds of free dance. And every night we go out on the plaza and we watch dancers and we watch free concerts and we watch free films. And then in September, (laughs) I get shaken out of bed by a noise. It was crazy. That was a very short and cool three months. And then there goes the neighborhood. And then literally there goes the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Talk about and not even overnight, I like just a moment of what I imagine had to be complete transformation and upending of your world and your life. Yes. And actually literally so, because we were on the side of Broadway that was open first. Like I live on Broadway, actual Broadway, which is one city block away from the World Trade Center site. And so the rest of my life has been in proximity to this renewal to this rebuilding, initially to months and years of devastation. It took us until October before we were allowed back into the house at all. We came, we were able to come in for like 10 minutes to pick up prescriptions and like any necessities, but we had to be accompanied by an armed guard to do so, you know, and then like walk through the broken front door to do it. And uh, and so we got our stuff and it was all fine. And and we lived on the floor of my mother-in-law's apartment for all that time. So, of course, the day we were allowed to come back into our own apartment, I think I got pregnant that day, and, <laughs> and then I had a baby. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's new. The fires are still going through December. There's a police barricade down the front of the street, and every single tourist in the entire history of the world is coming down my front door to see the pit, because it was like that was where the wall was down Broadway. And these mob scenes would just be packed in front of the house. And so to, like I'm carrying groceries, I'm pregnant and carrying groceries down the front of the house, like pushing my way through the tourists, getting in my front door. And then I come home and it's Oasis. Okay, fine. It was really wild. And it wasn't until December that the fires went out and that the internet came back on. So until then, we were living in like this just a weird war zone. A little strange. I can only imagine, but what a radical shift from one moment. You've got this very fun, very exciting, very active lifestyle. And then it's just completely upended with this horrifying disaster and then the ongoing thing of having that become this focus of the environment there. When that happened and as you came back to your home at that point and everything had been changed so much, I'm, I'm wondering what were some of the, the thoughts and feelings that were going through your head over the, the next few months as you adjusted to that change? So I discovered that I processed trauma through art. <laughs> I did not know that this was the case, but I wrote like my own personal kind of bloggy, you know, how I dealt with it. I wrote short stories based on that. I wrote, in fact, two of my short stories were pub, one was published by the Oklahoma Review next to Norman Mailer's piece. And one was published five years, like on an anniversary. So I wrote a lot, but even on the day that we were leaving, I had my camera back when we had digital cameras and not phone cameras. I had my digital camera and I could not stop taking pictures. Like I was just, I had to take pictures. And my husband was like, we are running away now. I'm like, no, I have to take this picture. And I would just frame it. Like I needed to see it and I needed to, I felt like I needed to remember it. 
in the chaos. I needed to remember the mess of it and then just sort of capture it so that I could move on from it. And I felt like if it was captured, I didn't need to remember it in my head. I could go back to it on paper or on picture. And, and I think that really helped me not internalize the trauma, but to like bring it outside of myself and then let it go. Obviously not forget it, but let it not affect me on a day-to-day basis. Although I had to say, man, some of those trucks going over the like metal grates, I still go, oh, <laughs> like low flying planes. I don't love them. <laughs> what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense when we think about some of the research that's been done on using writing as a tool for processing trauma. And a thing I've certainly seen with clients in my own experience with things is that you know, we need to externalize these things. We need a way to get them out of our head and processed. And I can see how capturing them in this form and knowing you've got those images to go back to, that allows your brain to let go of them because it knows they're there. I can go get them if I need to, I don't have to hold onto it in my brain as a memory that would be obviously very disturbing and bothersome. So that actually makes a lot of sense. So who knew that you were intuitively processing your trauma while you were you know, doing that, but hey, it worked. It did work. And I feel very grateful that it did because it would be horrible. I have plenty of friends who are still quite affected by having been down here and I was able to continue to live down here. A lot of my friends moved away. We stayed and I think the energy of renewal, of rebuilding, like I started our literary salon in 2009 when there was this influx of money. Finally, the government finally gave money to help the arts down here in 2009. And that's when we started really rebuilding down here. Between 2001 or late 2001, you come back. You know, have a child have a in, baby. in 2002. There was a lot yeah, of baby. There was a lot of baby issues. Like, oh, where are we gonna? What are we gonna do with the baby? How am I gonna write with the baby? And I was working on a novel the whole time. I, I was definitely working on a novel. And then you had to go through the whole: is the novel still relevant in the world? Should I bother? What should I do? How should I? You know. So there was a lot of that. Right. How did you work on working through or kind of processing those questions? How did you deal with? I don't that? think a lot. I just do. I didn't ruminate on whether and how. And when I found myself bumping up against, is this okay? I would just do it. I'm like, we'll figure out if it's okay after it's done. I'm not going to stop myself from doing it to worry about whether it's going to be well received. You're one of those ask forgiveness, not permission people, aren't you? A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Although I, I am actually a very rules following person. I'm just the person that's like on If you draw the line here, I'm like on the closest to the line that I can go. It's like a C over the end of the... In case the lift was ever made, I can run. (laughs) (laughs) Right up to the boundary, just nudging. Is this really the boundary? Okay, if it is, I'll hold it. I'll respect it. I'm okay with this being the boundary that I'm leaning on. So you're working on this novel. You're being a parent. And then what led you to get to the point of deciding, okay... I'm going to start pen parentis, which you've alluded to in various ways, but haven't named it as such. How did that come into being? So I had not sold my first novel. I had started a nonfiction book, which my agent did not sell. I had a third novel that I had written that I couldn't get anybody to even look at. Then I had started a fourth novel and I had two children by now. And I was like, banging my head on the wall. And I knew I was a good writer. I was winning awards all the time for short fiction. So I knew that I could write. And so I was like, either something is like really wrong with my long form, or I don't know, like something is wrong with the world or something. I don't know what's going on. But I I found that I couldn't really focus on the long form in the way that I felt like I needed to get it better. And that was mostly because I had kids, like, or I would blame the kids. I would say, oh, well, you know, if if I didn't have kids, and then I could just go to Yato and spend eight weeks only focusing on my writing, and it would be great, and then I could work on it. And the more I did that, the more I felt it was unfair to my kids. It really is my problem, not their problem. And then a friend of mine also had a child and a book that she was trying to write, and we would go to lunch, and all we did was bitch and moan about how, like, we don't have time. This is stupid. Like, how do people do this? So... My neighbor across the hall is a visual artist, and she had broken her ankle and was unable to go to this arts. So it was a city arts grant making seminar, and they were talking about money for artists that live downtown. And she asked me if I would go in her place and just take notes for her. And of course, I did because I 
do nice things for people. And so I'm sitting there and I take notes. And at the end of that thing, the woman gets an email like during the thing and says, oh my God, we have 250000 extra dollars in the budget. All of a sudden, like the lawmakers just, the federal government just sent money to downtown to revitalize the arts. So if you have any ideas that you can do downtown, <laughs> now's the time. And I was like, ah. So I called up my friend who we bitch and moan together. And I was like, listen, can we do a reading series? Can we do something? And we came up with this very elaborate plan that actually got turned down, but it was going to be a whole weekend. It was going to be called Pens and Pacifiers. And it was going to be this whole weekend of bringing like authors in that had kids and having childcare for them and, and having the authors like discuss how they made money or how they found time to write. And it was all this stuff. It got turned down because the the arts council said there was no art value. It was only educational and that we weren't going to get money. And so I said, what do you want? Like a reading series? And they're like, yeah, that's the, yeah, that would probably have gotten funded. And I was like, dude, I can do a reading series in my sleep. You got it next, next year. And so, <laughs> and so, so my friend and I started this reading series called the Pen Parentis After Work Reading Series. And it got funded. And we did four years together, I think, or yeah, three or four years together. Uh, and then she left because she had published her novel and had another child and wanted to spend some time on home stuff. And so I got a new curator and he did a year. And then I got the current curator that I have now, Christina Chu, and she's really amazing. She does um, themed nights. We bring in authors that have kids in groups and we do talk about like life work balance. And also we talk a lot about just the craft and just writing itself and whatever theme we have talking like we just did one on love and loss and how you process loss on the page and also how that affects your kids and how you know like whether you can write a memoir about your kid like who owns their story all kinds of questions that have to do with kids and adults and writers anyway so this reading series was on and within a year I was like, oh, let's make this bigger. Let's have a fellowship. We're going to give away money. And so I, I put up a thousand bucks. I was like, okay, somebody win this money. Because like some writer who has new, you know, said baby should get some money for being a good writer. And and that was really popular, <laughs> turns out. Uh, I made my money back. So that was good. And then after that, there was a lawyer who kept, who came to the salons and she worked actually right in that building right over there. She worked at a, at a really nice law firm and she offered to pro bono help me get a 501c3 for Pen Prentice. And she said, all you need are three board members and then you'll have a nonprofit. We'll do all the work. You just give us the information. And so I did. That was as simple as that. Like I, I said, yes, found two amazing people who were very willing to help Michael Del Castillo and Emily Ryan. And they were my board. And then we just kept doing the reading series. We kept doing the fellowship every year. And recently in 2018, we added a cycle of support, which is really now like now I feel like we were really coming to our own. Like this is really what it's about. And a cycle of support is both online and offline groups of writers that come together in small accountability groups, setting goals for themselves and meeting them the next time and just really fostering these little communities so that they actually help each other. And then the parents that are, we call them established parents, like anybody who's got a grown and flown child is an established parent. <laughs> and they're sort of the experts on like how you can get through some of these parenting stages. Whereas we also have established writers, like one of our writers won the National Book Award, and she's an established writer, like she knows what she's doing for writing. She's quite a novice at baby making because she just has a little tiny 10-month-old right now. And these different groups, they really help each other. And I find, oh, that's so funny. It's a very Montessori thing to have a mix of older and younger or established and, and emerging to have those together because they really help each other. The established writers need the emerging writers, because the emerging writers have the fire, they have the drive, they're not jaded, they're not tired, they're not like freaking out about how like the industry is this or the industry, you know, they're just excited about writing. And so that really feeds the established writers. And conversely, with the parenting, the people who have new babies are so scared the ones who have only one child and it's new, they're like terrified. They don't know what to do. It's a whole new world. And the established parents are like, oh yeah, I had four kids. They're lovely. The communities are really beautiful. I'm very proud of it. 
actually. For people who are listening who don't know, in Montessori schools, typically they will cluster groups of multiple ages and multiple grades together. And the interaction really creates a lot of interesting things. It does give the chance for the older ones to have leadership. It gives the younger ones some mentors to look up to who they know they can lean on and who will show them around and such. So it's a concept that makes a ton of sense as soon as you step back and look at it. But it does seem like a thing that is not often enough in place. So it's a way that certainly sounds like part of what's worked very well um, with these groups in Pen Parentis. And I'm hearing as, as I'm listening to you talk about this, I'm thinking about some of the, the things you're sharing. And even for folks who aren't writers per se, I think there's a lot of the ideas that are being used here that could really apply to anybody about the challenges of how do you create something? How do you do something in the world when you are also being a parent? And, and that could really, again, be other things, but how do you manage to do these two things that are labor intensive, time and energy intensive, and might even seem contradictory to each other? And it really sounds like that's a big piece of what Pen Parentis is about is helping people to be able to do that. I literally call this chapter the My Manifesto in my book. <laughs> because I think that the early 2000s were very detrimental to parenting because they turned parenting into a profession. There was like mommy blogging that was like a thing. And it wasn't about the blogging. It was about the mommying that it was. And so it was like competitive parenting. And even now, people will say, well, I do this with my child and everybody's, oh, my God, I don't do that. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, that's horrible. I don't do that. And your kid is different. Like they, two kids in the same family are different. You cannot do the same exact thing to every single child. It does not work. And I don't know why people cannot see that. It is so obvious in your own life. You can look at your own childhood and say, you know, there's no way that you can put up a perfect list that was going to make you have a perfect childhood. Even if you try to refix your own childhood, there's no way. Like, there's just too much variable and it's a whole entire life thing. How many marriages work? And we're adults. Like, there, there are no rules for these things. These are life events. You work with them. You figure them out as you go. You try to do your best. You try to be kind. You try to be good. You take whatever you can think of for resources. You try to figure stuff out. You apply it. If it works, you keep it. When it stops working, you change it. We're so intensely seeking the right five steps to do the perfect thing that we read all these blog posts that say that. I don't know what it is, but we are so triggered by the idea that there is a perfect way to do things. And we really desperately want that to be true so that we could just do it and be done with it. <laughs> Once we make okay an objective thing and a measurable thing, yeah. then we have a way that we can definitively say we're okay. At least we think. This is my take on it. Yeah. But of course, the reality is that doesn't exist. It is, however, a lot easier to package and sell, yeah. Yeah. which I think is one of the things about it. And then we as reactive beings see other people do it and we go, well, other people are doing it. So I guess that's the thing we're supposed to do. So I guess I'm going to do that too. Yeah. And next thing you know, there's 800 people doing some variant of the same thing because they saw other people doing the same thing, even though none of it necessarily has any real tie to success, happiness, well-being, whatever. Yeah, it's like it's, we we're desperate for steps. We're desperate for like guidance on how to do things better. And I don't, if you have good intentions, try stuff. Like, <laughs> I think you're right. And I think that for a lot of people, it's not that easy yeah. because I think for a lot of people, it isn't okay, at least in their minds. They don't think it's okay to fail to be bad at something, to struggle with something. And I think well, in the, some ways that message is getting worse. The worst is that they're afraid worse. to struggle with something, to, de to actually have a, a hard time doing it. I think that my book starts and it might say 50 times, like, this is not easy. It's not easy. Life is not easy. It's just isn't. And there are great moments in it, but it's not easy. Nothing's easy, really. For you, though, I think in part, again, because you had this idea nurtured of just try stuff and it's okay whether or not it's good, bad, or whatever, just deal with it. And, you know, if you, you break the glass, it. clean I up the glass. And a lot. Humor. I have to. I get why that for you is a thing that's almost, in a, again, an ingrained practice that you've developed over, over the years. I'm sure, though, that in 
the folks that you connect with and meet with in these groups and in Pen Parentis that you see people who aren't coming into it with that sort of mindset. So how do you or others in the group, like how do you help or support those folks? What do you tell them to help them be able to keep pushing forward, keep trying things instead of just going, I got a rejection letter. I guess I'm not a writer. <laughs> or, you know, my, my kid threw up on my manuscript, so I guess I'm not a writer or whatever obstacles I'm making too much light of it. But what do you do to help them sure. with that? First of all, we're very accepting, like, because there's no right way to do it. If you're trying, you're succeeding. So as long as you're giving yourself a goal in the accountability groups, the team leaders are really trained to help to make solid goals. The goal has to be measurable and it has to be attainable. So if you tell yourself, again, I'm going to finish my novel by next week. Yeah, no, it's not a good goal because you're not going to. And maybe you can sit for one hour with your manuscript this week, not even every day. People like to set goals that are very standard, like I'm going to write for 10 minutes a day. Maybe you can write for 10 minutes a day, but a lot of times people can't. Maybe they can write for, you know, in the week, they can write for three days. Some three days you're going to write for 10 minutes. So a lot of our goals are, they seem really low when you get started. But then once you start up a pattern, you can expand the goal. Once you've succeeded three weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, all of a sudden you'll hear somebody say, I think I can maybe write 10 pages instead of just five. And then they may fail the next week. And then they're like, oh, I didn't make it. I'm like, oh, well, how close did you get? Well, I got eight. That's more than five. We really celebrate the successes, even if the success is just like we did have a, uh, the mother of a newborn who said, all I want to do is open the file on my computer every day. I don't even want to work on I just I need to get back into this like idea but she but she had a newborn like she the the whole idea of doing anything other than parenting was terrifying to her. This is about starting where you yeah. are and building from there and working with the reality of your environment. That's what I'm we hearing. We do spend a lot of time assessing where are you? Yes, you want to write a book. How many pages are already written? Do you have an outline? Do you even want an outline? Do you work from an outline? Like, what? how do you work? What is it that you do? What are, where are you? Once you know where you are, a lot of times you're farther along than you think, first of all. And then you can say, well, the next thing that I have to do is this small thing. There's such a flexibility that would seem to me to be required to be able to actually work on writing a book while also having a child at really almost any stage, but especially a newborn. And that flexibility is crucial because you can't just be like, okay, I'm going to do this because your baby is going to have other plans that you don't know about. And you can't exactly just be like, oh, whatever. You've got to attend to that. How do you help people nurture and develop that degree of flexibility and adaptability to be able to keep going. Through. I think that people are subsumed in guilt in this world. And I think that guilt stops them from doing a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of what I say over and over again is, I mean, I use the word forgiveness a lot and I just forgive yourself. Just let it go. Like really forgive it. Just be like, okay, that really sucks. Too bad. Move on. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I'm not going to worry about that anymore. It's hard. That's a hard practice. It is especially hard if you are a person who never wants to repeat that thing again. And so you just cycle it over and over again. Like what else could I have done differently? Frankly, most of the time we're doing the best we can. If we made a mistake, it's because we didn't see a different option at the moment. And if you let all that stuff inform the fact that you made a poor decision, you can just be like, okay, well, in that situation, I made a really sucky decision, but it was the best decision that I could make. At least I lived through it. I'm over it. I'm not an it could have been worse kind of person, but a little bit. There's like a, there's a little bit of, okay, it's bad. It could have been worse. I'm glad it wasn't. Let's not do that again. Let's see if we can do <laughs> There's something new. And so I really believe in starting from where you are and moving forward all the time. I, I actually taught my kids that like explicitly. I said, if you're having a terrible day, just stop the day and say, okay, this is the end of today. And now from now, <laughs> what am I going to do to make today better? For me as a, as a writer, you know, you were talking about this rejection thing. I always, when I get a rejection, I send it right back out. Like I, I take it, I look at it. If there are notes, I do the notes, I edit it like right then. And I, I do not want it. I want it back out in the world because sitting on the rejection and feeling bad about somebody rejecting you is so soul sucking. Like it's just, it's really depressing. 
I want it all off my desk and like in somebody else's hair, not mine. I hear a real focus for you on action. Yeah. Okay. What's going on? What went wrong? How do we tweak it? And then let's go again. But yeah. you also it sounds like really figured out this thing of if I do something and it doesn't work out well, then what I'm going to do is figure out how do I do it better? And I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to go again. And at some point, it'll be good enough if I just keep going. In writing, people will tell you, the, the editor will say, there are no characters. <laughs> oh, well, okay. <laughs> I just need to add characters. You know, that that is lucky. You know, in, in the real world, maybe somebody will tell you, hey, you needed to pay more attention to me. And then you're like, oh, okay, well. I do think that it's important to be open to your critics, hear them. You don't have to believe every single thing that every single person says. And actually, a writing workshop helps you really suss that out because you'll see that you'll give the same piece of writing to 10 different people. Eight of them will totally not get it. Two of them will be like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read. And you can tell. And then those two people are the ones whose feedback you really want. The rest of the people, that's fine. They didn't get it. They're not your readers. There are better and worse readers of you and of your life, kind of. People that you get that get you. And then there are people that will never get you. And that's fine. They'll never get you. They're just, they're going to be baffled by you. I think <laughs> the thing you're getting at is, it is important for us to recognize there is an audience for our work. And that's not yeah. just true with writing. It's true with anything. Yeah. And we need to know who that is. And we need to know there's people it's not for, and we shouldn't worry about them Yeah. because that's just going to be a distraction and it's not ever going to be for them. And we need to know who it's for, and we need to really listen to them. Mm -hmm. And those are the people we go get their feedback, dig in, make those improvements so we can make it even better for them. Definitely. So let's talk about your book. You've alluded to it a couple of times, but I definitely want to talk about it. So tell us about your book and how it came into being. Sure. So my book is called Book and Baby, and it has a preposterous title that I cannot remember. I have to read it. The Complete Guide to Managing Chaos and Becoming a Wildly Successful Writer Parent. So... <laughs> It's, as you can see, the title is a bit tongue in cheek, a little bit making fun of business books that say you can have it all on the cover. What it is, is a collection of everything I learned in the first 10 years of running Pen Prentice. So in the first 10 years of running Pen Prentice, I interviewed more than 300 writers, all of which had kids. And most of which were super famous. There are quotes in here from Min Jin Lee. There are like, there are really recognizable names in this book. And there are little sections that are from the salons where they're actually transcripted little pieces of advice, little stories that are in there as well. And I organized the book almost like a reference book or like a guidebook where the beginning is a little bit of backstory and like how I came how I came to writing and how I came to starting Pen Prentice. But then the real core of the book is divided into the ages of the kid. So infant, toddler, little kid, big kid, and even all the way up to grown and flown. And in these different stages, I divide up a writer's time, energy, and money. So the resources that you need to make yourself a successful writer. And I talk about how having a child influences those various resources. And then I give you a million different ideas for how you might replenish your own resources because it's not going to be the same. Like one person will have an infant that sleeps through the night. They may be sort of short on energy because babies are hard, but they'll probably have more time because their baby sleeps. So they'll be able to write when the baby's sleeping. If you have a baby who's colicky, who's up and all the time and crying and crazy, then you don't have time or energy. You're, you're like really melted. And so what if you have a lot of money, maybe you can hire a nanny. So then you have some time and energy. There's a lot of different things that you can do. But if you really can self-assess your own time, energy, and money, then you might be able to address those issues. And then the other thing that I say a lot in the book is that it is a transitional thing. You may have a baby that is the easiest baby in the universe. And then when they are a toddler, they're like burning your house down. And then next minute they're, they're in school and they're like golden child. So you don't know what's going to happen. And I think in the book, I really try to show you that things change and you have to change. Parenthood is a phase type thing. It goes, it moves, it changes. And you have to kind of be flexible. As you go through it, there's a lot of advice and tricks and tips and different things that people do that are hilarious outside of the box things 
And I think what's really important to learn from the book is that you're going to have to think, you're going to have to figure out your situation. The, in the interviews, they always, some somebody always raises their hands, excuse me, when do you find time to write? That is like the number one question that writers get asked. And if the writer says, well, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, a third of the audience goes, yeah. And a third of the audience goes, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be a writer. And the point is some people can get up early. Some people stay up super late to write. Some people write in little dribs and drabs throughout the day. There are a million ways to do this. And what is right is finishing your book. That's what's right. Eventually. It doesn't have to be this year. Two years from now. Finish it. Someday. Which, if you keep finding ways to work on it when and where you can in a way that works for you, is a thing that will happen. I, I think Noting this as a reference book, I think is a really good way to characterize it from the parts of it that I have read is it very much has that that feel of you go to the section that's appropriate to where your kid is, you dig in, you start looking through, and there's lots of different ideas and tools and stories and things. And so this is a very specialized, which is great way of giving people a reference to be able to go, okay, so I've got this eight-year-old and I want to write a book, yeah, yeah, but exactly. I, nothing's happening with it. What the hell do I do here? And really being able to get a bunch of ideas, hear how other people have done it and some suggestions in there. So it, it I think it serves that purpose really well. And I, I'm not aware of any other works out there that, that do this. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of buying nonfiction and then just looking at it when you need it. There are so many people that I am so envious of because they buy nonfiction and they read it cover to cover and then they have all this knowledge. And I am definitely a person who's, okay, I, am, I have the Dr. Spock on my whatever and I will look at it if my child gets sick. That seems like a very efficient approach. And if one of the things we're looking at is we have a very real challenge on time, resources, and energy why spend time reading something that is knowledge you don't need to be able to apply, right? You can go grab the book off, you know, the bookshelf or wherever it is and pull it out when you need it, or you can address the parts that are specific. I think we've gotten so used to reactive learning or where we're getting stuff pushed at us and just taking it in versus more intentional learning or more intentional consumption, which is what you're talking about, right? And that's very clearly your intent with this is book is this is a reference tool to be consumed with intent around the areas that you're specifically needing help with. How, how long has the book been out now? It came out in January 21. And now that things are starting to, to open up again, is this a thing where you're going to be able to do any kind of appearances or do you have plans for that as far as you know, promoting that's really the book? Good question. I have absolutely no idea. I have been invited to do some very cool and weird things that I have mostly said yes to. I'm doing my second creativity spa with a, a group called Scribente Maternum. They do retreats for moms that have, they have guilt problem, moms that are very dis distant from their writing and don't feel like they should be writing, like that kind of thing. And so I do these uh, really cool creativity spas where I just reconnect people to why they love to write. And hopefully that will you know, trigger them to keep wanting to write because a lot of it is just wanting to do it. I've been doing a lot of these kind of interviews, which I love. And uh, you know, Zoom is so great. It's so great to just be able to talk to people. I, I randomly Zoomed some woman in Brisbane because I really like her press, Tiny Owl Press. They do really neat, teeny tiny things. And I've always just been so captivated by her. And she published me like in the, in the 2000s. And she's on Twitter. And I was like, we could just Zoom. Like I could meet you. And we did. And it was so random because we there was one of those things where we didn't need anything from each other. We just wanted to meet each other. <laughs> it was like having coffee with somebody in Australia. So what's coming next for you? Where where to from here? So I am shopping a novel. So I, I, I'm querying agents. So I'm in that devastating phase where you're like, hi, I have a thousand million awards and I wrote a book and it got an award too. And it's all really cool. Please take me. And they're like, yeah, I don't know what shelf you belong on. I don't know. You know, just keep throwing the spaghetti at the Can wall. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? 
Uh, yeah, you're not this novel. So it's a it's a near future sci-fi fiction. I'm coining a term of domestic science fiction. It's women writers writing science fiction, and it's about families. It's about life. Sarah Langan's Good Neighbors is one of these books where it's just it's not realistic, but it's also realistic. Domenica Ruda's Last Day is like this, where it's like not real but feels really real. Helen Phillips writes like this a lot. Uh, she wrote what did she write? The Need which is about a mom meeting herself. There's some really cool books that are like that. So my book is also near near future fiction and it's um set in a world. Okay, so first of all, I wrote this book in 2012, pre-pandemic, and it is about a woman in this world the arts and education are combined. You're not allowed to do fine arts for the sake of arts. You must do it if you're going to do it at all. It has to be in the service of education. And then Trump tried to merge the or tried to get rid of the NEA at the National Foundation for the Arts. And I was like, wait, no, stop. I wrote this. Don't do this. <laughs> it doesn't turn out well. But in the book, the, so the main character is a dancer and she gives up her dancing career because she doesn't want to teach PE. So she instead decides to take on being a mother, which you're allowed one child and you have to be a full-time parent if you choose to have a child. One of the parents must be full-time at home. It's enforced professional parenthood. And uh, you had to you have to devote 12 years of your life to this child, 100%. And so in this world, she has given up her career as a dancer, and she is being a full-time mother. And the kid is six years old, which is when she could, if she wanted to, put him in a facility and go back to her career. And so it's very much about parenthood, careerhood, because as you know, I don't believe in putting parenthood against careerhood. I believe in melding it all. So that's what my book's about. <laughs> it sounds both disturbing and really interesting. It's a really fun world. There's really cool stuff. There's flying cars and the cars have coffee makers. It's really... <laughs> It's my dream world. This sounds really cool. Actually, I'm I'm very I'm, I'm so I'm hoping that it does indeed. Um, I wanted to get sold so that I can talk about the world. <laughs> attention, because it, yeah, it sounds like a very interesting world. I would love to yeah to um, be able to see it on, on a bookshelf and read it because it sounds like a really cool book. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I want to say thank you, Milda, for being on this show today and for taking the time to talk and and share. I really love what you're doing with with Pen Parentis and your book because I think it's really helping people who have something to say, something to put out into the world to help give them support to do it. Because in so many ways, that's true of people, right? They've got a, a thing they want to do or say. And in this specific area of writing, you've, you've provided this support system, this vehicle to help people do that. And I think that's cool because so many more people are going to be able to get their message, their story, um, something meaningful out into the world. So I, I really admire the work that you've done with that. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.